while keeping your finger in Romans 4, please turn to Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to read one verse from Genesis 15, and the rest of our time this morning will be in the book of Romans, especially chapter 4, but please turn. I'd like you to see Genesis 15, 6. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we have been in a series of sermons on the life of Abraham. Last week we considered Genesis 15 in its entirety, and I said last time we would return to just one verse, a verse that I suggested uh, is among the most important in the Bible, and we will see why this morning, God being our helper. Genesis 15, verse 6, there we read, and Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Let's pray once more. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, make your word alive to us. Show us yourself within your word. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior. And make the book alive to us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. The most vivid early memory uh, that I have occurred when I was four years old. Uh, It was in the night. It was on uh, that day at our home, the home that I was born in, grew up in. Our home in Sawgrass Mills in Fort Lauderdale, Florida actually burned to the ground. Uh, I was asleep in my room, a room I shared with my brother Anthony and my brother Zach. That evening, after we had gone to bed, my mother had been uh, working on some wood furniture and applying a finish to that wood furniture and using different chemicals necessary for that work. And as she completed that task, she took the rags that had the chemicals on them, uh, neglecting to notice the warnings on the cans of the chemicals themselves. Uh, She mixed those chemicals by wrapping the claws together and, in effect, made a kind of bomb. And uh, she placed those rags wrapped tightly together into a trash can in the garage in the humid South Florida air, and those chemicals and those towels spontaneously combusted. At some point in the night, the fire started in the garage and spread to the rest of the house, and before the night was over, the house was burned to the ground. And I remember as clear as any memory in my life, uh, waking up, being woken by my older brother Anthony. He is uh, about two years older than I am, and he woke me up, and he said, Alex, uh, we have to get out of here. The house is on fire. And I don't know why. I, I might have thought that it was some kind of joke or something like that, or maybe I was just in a daze having just been woken up. I remember seeing him. I was lying here seeing him in the really just his silhouette in the doorway, and um, he said, we got to get out, Uh, but for whatever reason, I turned back over to the other side of the pillow, and I went back to sleep. Genesis 15, verse 6, uh, is a verse that's taken up in two other passages in the New Testament. I said at the beginning of this series that we would survey the life of Abraham, and especially slow down and consider those events in his life that the New Testament reflects upon. And this statement in Genesis 15, verse 6 is one such passage. It is reflected upon 
In Romans chapter 4, in fact, the entire chapter in Romans chapter 4 is taken up with expounding Genesis 15 verse 6, and then there's another passage in Galatians chapter 3. I have decided for the purposes of this series and for the purposes of us grasping and understanding the life of Abraham and how this verse fits into his overall narrative and his life of faith that I'm only going to turn our attention to Romans chapter 4. Galatians 3 and Romans chapter 4 are making a very similar argument, but they're doing it in very different contexts. And it is not easy to break into the argument in the book of Galatians just to consider what Paul says about Romans 15, 6 uh, in Galatians chapter 3. I would encourage you, though, to read that chapter in your own time and study the way Paul expounds uh, Genesis 15, verse 6 in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look only, though, at Romans chapter 4, where I think it's a little easier. Paul's argument is a little more linear and I think will help us best to understand the import and the meaning of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. So here's what I'd like to do this morning. I would like us to consider five basic arguments or assertions or statements, more or less, that the Apostle Paul advances in the book of Romans concerning justification by faith. The first assertion we're going to see is in Romans chapter 3. The next four are going to be found in Romans chapter 4 and the first couple of verses of Romans chapter 5. Five basic things that Paul, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, wants to tell us about the doctrine of justification by faith and particularly how Abraham and this statement in Genesis 15, 6 fits into Paul's teaching on justification by faith. So that is The plan we'll pursue this morning. I have five points, and the first is this. This is the first assertion that I think we see the Apostle Paul making concerning justification by faith, and that is simply, number one, we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Paul asserts, in fact, I think everything drives toward this assertion in chapter 3, that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Uh, so Romans 3:28. if you could have eyes on that text, toward the end of chapter 3, Paul makes this statement very plainly. He says, verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now recognize we're breaking into an argument here that Paul has been carefully building for three chapters. I just want to briefly recast that argument. In chapter 1 of the book of Romans, Paul has asserted that the wrath of God is coming against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women. Verse 18 of chapter 1 says this much. There Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then Paul goes on to document many of the evils that mark the people of the world, people like you and me. Romans chapter 1 verse 29, he describes men and women in this way, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Children, listen to this, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, 
heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And then beginning in chapter 2, Paul makes this very personal. He says in verse 2 of Romans 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. In other words, people guilty of such sins, people like you and me, we know the righteous judgment of God, the wrath of God rests on those who practice such things. Verse 5 of chapter 2, he makes this very personal by saying, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. In other words, God is coming, He is holy, He is righteous, we have sinned against God and lived in ungodliness and unrighteousness, which has manifested itself in a thousand different ways, and the righteous wrath of God is coming for all those who have lived in ungodliness and rebellion against God, and He is rightly going to repay each one according to His deeds. But then Paul turns in the latter half of chapter 2, he moves away from just addressing mankind generally to addressing the Jews in particular. I think he recognizes that in his audience there would have been Jewish people who would have made a pretense to some kind of spiritual and religious privilege. Because we're Jews, because we have circumcision, because we have the covenants, because we have the Mosaic law, well surely we're in a better position, a more privileged position than the people of the world. And so Paul wants to address them in particular, and he tells them in the latter half of Romans 2 that unless they keep the whole Mosaic law perfectly, they too are under the wrath of God. He's saying, don't make any pretense that you stand on better footing or that somehow you will escape the righteous and just wrath of God. You too are sinful. You cannot be saved by the law. Their circumcision, their status as Jews, as the covenant people of God, does nothing in securing for them righteousness before God. But Paul concludes now in chapter 3, verse 9, eyes on the passage if you would. He says this, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then in verse 10 and following, Paul quotes a number of Psalms to establish this point. As it is written, verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together all have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then Paul says, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that is Jews, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised, people with the law and people without the law, everyone, the whole world, accountable to God, all under sin, consigned under the just wrath of holy God. And now Paul, draw, Paul draws the conclusion that he's been driving at, I think, for the entire book. In verse 20 of chapter 3, this has been the assertion that Paul has been aiming for to establish to his audience. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified, that is, made right with God 
in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul is saying, don't make the mistake of thinking obedience to the law, in this case particularly the Mosaic law, is going to get you anywhere with God. He's saying, you Jews and you Gentiles, all mankind under sin have a problem. It is that God is holy and that you are not and that He demands perfect righteousness and you ain't got it. That is the big problem facing the human race. It's the big problem facing each and every one of us. This is the grand issue, that God is holy, that He requires righteousness, that we are sinners, and we cannot be justified or achieve that standard of righteousness by works of the law. Paul is trying to persuade his audience, Jews and Gentiles, that law-keeping will not be the solution to this problem. Circumcision is no solution. Religious formalism is no solution. Acts of penance will not be the solution. Your good outweighing your bad will not be the solution. Your church membership, who your pastor was, who your priest was, will not be any solution for you. Well, what can we do then? It's a very bleak picture that is advanced in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 20. Well, now beginning In verse 21, we have some of the best news in the Bible. These next verses, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, one of the thickest passages in all of Scripture with rich truth. And I'm just not able to sort of open up all the chambers and windows that sort of burst out of this passage as it unfolds. I want to stay more general with the passage and have us feel the overall sort of weight of it as it comes out. But maybe another day we'll return to it. But Just listen as I read or follow along as I read. After having just said that no one will be justified by works of the law, the Apostle Paul says, Romans 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? In other words, if if we're not saved through works of the law or justified through works of the law, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Okay, so what is Paul's first big assertion? Negatively, we have it in chapter 3, verse 20. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. By by circumcision, by 
strict subscription to the Mosaic law, by our good outweighing our bad, by anything that our hands have done, by deeds of the law, no one will be justified in God's eyes. But then he puts it positively, verse 24, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God put forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. He summarizes it again in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So this is Paul's big assertion concerning justification by faith. No one here will be justified, made right with God through works of the law. How is it that we are justified though? Paul says it will be by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the first assertion. We are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Consider with me secondly now, Paul's second main assertion in his argument. This is where Abraham enters the picture. Secondly, Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. He says, we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Secondly, he will argue that Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. So now you should be in Romans 4, verse 1. It's a series on the life of Abraham, not the book of Romans. So let's consider now how this passage reflects on the life of Abraham, particularly Abraham's faith in Genesis 15, 6. Paul says, verse 1, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? Now, does that seem somewhat odd to you? Like, why, why mention Abraham at all? It's almost like this is where Paul's mind goes immediately after just announcing that all are, are dead in sin, sold under sin, only justified by faith in Jesus Christ. He says, well, what about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Why does he bring Abraham up at all, and why does he bring Abraham up now? I think there's at least two reasons. First of all, Abraham was the forefather of the Jews. In the history and in the annals of God's people throughout the history of the world, in the Old Testament, there's no one bigger than Abraham. He's, he's the Mac Daddy guy. If you're going to make a point, make it using Abraham, because God, after all, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And no one was held in higher esteem for the Jews than Abraham himself. There's a second reason, though, that Abraham, I think, is brought up here. I think Paul is anticipating an objection to what he has just said about justification. He's saying no one, no one, then or now, is justified by works of the law. We're justified, rather, by faith in Christ. And Paul is anticipating the objection from some in his audience to say, well, what about Abraham? Wasn't Abraham justified by his works? Wasn't Abraham required to be circumcised? Wasn't he made right with God through circumcision and his obedience to the prescriptions that God had given to him? I think Paul's anticipating that objection. And so Paul, in essence, saying, well, let's talk about Abraham. Let me go right to where I know your minds are going. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So I think Abraham is going to challenge a false assumption some of these Jews are making. The Jews would assume, well, Abraham and all the Old Testament saints, weren't they made right with God through, through circumcision and obedience to the Mosaic law? That's the false assumption that now Paul wants to puncture in his argument. So verse 3, he says, what does the Scripture say? He says, you're Bible people. 
Turn to Genesis 15, 6. What does it say? Abraham believed God. That is, he had faith in God. Abraham believed God, and it, his faith, the promise of God, was counted to him, reckoned to him, credited to him as righteousness. Paul has just told the Jews, no one will be justified by works of the law, and by no one, he means no one, not even Abraham. And he has just told them that men and women, if they are justified at all, will be justified by faith apart from works of the law. And now he says, remember, that's how it worked for Abraham. Abraham was worshiping idols in Ur of the Chaldeans. He's called out of that life, though he fails many times and often fails miserably and was still a sinner and did not keep the law of God perfectly. He believed God, and it was said that that faith was counted, reckoned in God's eyes as righteousness. He's saying this is how our father Abraham was made right with God. He wasn't made right with God through circumcision. He wasn't made right with God through works of the law. He wasn't made right with God by what his hands did. He was justified. He was made right by believing what God had promised, believing that God would give a son, that he would give a seed, and that through his offspring, through his seed, all the families of the world would be blessed. Now, verse 4, he says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Very simple point Paul's making. If you do the work and then you get paid for it, well, that's not grace or a gift. That's what you deserved. Kids, if I invited you to come to my house, as I may invite one or two of you teenagers here in a few months to rake up the leaves in my yard, and I say, I'm going to pay you this amount of money if you rake up my leaves, and then you do rake up my leaves, and you come to the door and say, Pastor Alex, I'm ready to collect the money that you said you would give me, and I give it to you. That's not grace. That's not a gift. You did the work, you deserve the money, you have gotten what you are due. That's, in essence, what Paul is saying here. If we work and keep the law perfectly, and then we get heaven forever, well, that's what we're due. There's no grace or gift in that. But that's not how it works for us, and that's not how it worked for Abraham, Paul is going to say. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the who? The ungodly, the asebe in Greek, which means the wicked, the impious, the people who have lived in unrighteousness and in ungodliness. Those who believe in the one who justifies the wicked, the ungodly, the impious, his faith is counted as righteousness. Abraham, Paul is saying, believed in the God who justifies the wicked, the unrighteous, the ungodly, those who don't have perfect obedience to the works of the law to commend themselves to God. God is pleased to justify the wicked, justify the ungodly through faith in Christ, which is counted, reckoned, you can imagine a ledger, and how credits and debits are made. God is willing to give Credit to those who have faith in what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, the possessor of such faith, who believes the promise of God, who holds God to be right and true, and who stakes his life on the word of the Lord and what He has promised, 
Paul's saying his faith is counted, reckoned, credited, considered righteousness in God's eyes. In other words, no one is justified by works of the law, not even Abraham. But all those who are made right with God are justified just like Abraham through faith in the gospel, faith in the promise of God. And that faith, God is pleased to count and to reckon as the righteousness required to bridge the gap between sinful rebels like us and holy God. He accepts it, counts it as righteousness, which, brothers and sisters, is what we need. We need so desperately to be right with God. How was Abraham, our father, made right with God? God made a promise, a promise that He would give to Abraham a son. And Abraham believed it, and he held fast to it. Faith, therefore, became the instrument through which justification and righteousness and salvation was counted to Abraham. All right, that's the second assertion. First of all, we're justified by faith apart from works of the law. Paul then argues, secondly, that Abraham, that's how it was with him, he was justified by faith, not by works. Now, the third assertion, third argument that Paul makes here, that is that Abraham had faith before he was circumcised. Abraham had faith before he was circumcised. Paul, the great expository preacher that he was, pays very close attention to context and when things show up in the narrative, and now he's going to make a very careful contextual argument about justification by faith based on when Genesis 15, 6 appears in the Abraham story. So Paul isn't done with Abraham yet. He's got more to say about this, and he wants to emphasize the timing of Abraham's faith. He's trying to say, you Jews. Do you remember when Abraham had faith? Do you remember what had gone before and what still laid ahead? And Paul's answer will be that Abraham's faith, by which he was counted righteous before God and made right in God's eyes, the answer will be that that occurred before he was ever circumcised. Abraham was counted righteous, listen, before circumcision was even a thing. It hasn't even come up in the Bible up until Genesis 15. It's then that Abraham had faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It won't be until Genesis 17 that God calls Abraham to be circumcised. You see how careful Paul is in his exegesis of the book of Genesis. You have to understand in this passage in Romans 4 how circumcision is functioning here. Circumcision is like a stand-in phrase for the legal requirements placed on God's people under the Old Covenant. So circumcision here is like the representative requirement. God made many requirements of Abraham and his people later on under the Mosaic Covenant, ethnic Jews under the Old Covenant, and circumcision was one of the most prominent of those requirements and one most deeply filled with meaning. So circumcision is sort of like a representative requirement of all the other legal requirements that God gave to ethnic Israel beginning in Genesis chapter 17. But Paul's point is going to be, don't you understand, you who have read Genesis 15, 16, 17 and on, don't you understand all that stuff, circumcision and the ceremonial laws and the civil laws and all these other things, all that came long after Abraham had faith in the promise of God and was counted righteous in God's eyes. On the day when Abraham believed 
or, or obeyed God's word to be circumcised, he had already been counted righteous in God's eyes. So the argument is going to go, how can we then stipulate something else like circumcision or law-keeping as a requirement to achieve righteousness before God if all of that came long after Abraham had already been counted righteous before God? You see his argument. Well, let's pick it up in Romans 4, verse 9. Paul says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Does righteousness only come from those who have obeyed the Old Testament prescriptions about circumcision and subsequent laws? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? You see sort of the ruthless, painstaking, exegetical logic that Paul is imposing on his Jewish audience. He's saying, look at the text more carefully. Study the Bible more closely. When did God justify Abraham? Was it before or after circumcision? Verse 10, how then was it counted him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. In other words, Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. Justification by faith came before circumcision was ever a thing. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He was righteous before those other laws came into effect. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Verse 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What's Paul saying? In other words, you don't have to have all that Jewish stuff to be saved. You don't have to have circumcision. You don't have to have the Mosaic law. You don't have to have obedience to the works of the law in order to be counted righteous before God. What you need is what Abraham needed, faith in the promise of God that is then counted to you as righteousness, as your justification. Paul sees huge implications in the chronology of Abraham's life and particularly his faith. If he had the faith by which he was justified before circumcision, justification doesn't depend on circumcision. It doesn't depend on works of the law. And I think, friends, okay, so for us now, so I don't think we think normally in this, these terms as Gentiles. We don't think about circumcision and uncircumcision. I think we can extrapolate beyond circumcision. Circumcision is a stand-in for some other things. I think the idea is this. There is no legal prescription, no law requirement that can be permitted to become an extra requirement in order for one to be justified by God. I'll say that again. There is no legal prescription, legal requirement, rule, if you will, that can be given, that can be added to God's standard for righteousness, what He requires for righteousness. There is nothing else by which we are justified before God except faith in Jesus Christ, God's own Son. Someone says, well, you must be baptized. You've got to be baptized. You can't go to heaven without being baptized. Wrong. 
thief on the cross was never baptized. He inherited paradise that day with the Lord. Well, you must attend services. You must burn candles and rub beads together. You must do acts of penance. You must complete certain sacrifices. You must, you must, you must. You, 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 you must have more good than you do bad. You must use a particular translation of the Bible. You must not drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. And if you keep these laws and these prescriptions, if you meet this standard, well, then it is by meeting that standard that you will be righteous in the eyes of God. No other legal requirement is allowed to come into the equation. By works of the law, by legal requirements, be it circumcision, be it expectation with respect to going to confession or something like that, there is no legal requirement by which we can be saved. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We must have faith in the Son of God, and it is through faith in Him and what He has accomplished, brother, sister, that you are counted righteous in the eyes of God, nothing else. To Him we introduced a couple months ago, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul, not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole, not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my cares or sighs or tears can bear my awful load. It's purely and totally and only through what God has done in His Son and by faith in Him that we are counted right in His sight. Fourth point. Let me recast these assertions. I appreciate your patience and your long-suffering and your attention. It's a very linear sermon, okay? Because Paul's argument is very linear. Number one, we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Number two, Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. Number three, Abraham had faith before he was circumcised. And now the big point, number four, Abraham's faith. It's a paradigm for our faith. That's a big word. Kids, do you know the word paradigm? It means like a model. If Abraham's faith is a paradigm for our faith, it's a model for our faith. It shows us how our faith should work and what our faith should be like. Fourthly, Abraham's faith is a paradigm for our faith. This is Paul's argument. Listen to how it unfolds, or please follow along as I read Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You hear that? Are you tracking with Paul's argument? The promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Wait, so I don't have to be a Jew? Don't have to be circumcised? Don't have to keep the law perfectly? No, you do not. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. We are reckoned Abraham's children if we, like Abraham, believe the promise of God as it's been revealed in the gospel. He looked forward, we look back. You, my friend, are counted a child of Abraham, not through blood, not through some genealogical principle. 
We are counted the children of Abraham if we, like Abraham, have faith in God's promise. If God has given to us the gift of faith, that we might too believe in the promise of God. All those who have faith are reckoned, counted to be sons and daughters of Abraham. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Remember when God said that to Abraham? He said that in Genesis 15. He told him to go out and look at the stars in the sky. He said, can you count them, Abraham? Such shall your offspring be. Which means if you are a child of Abraham, you could look up at the sky and you can say, see that star there? That's me. I'm one of those stars in the sky promised to Abraham as his offspring. Don't you love digging into the Bible and understanding it? We are reckoned to be that offspring that God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. You're praying for saving faith for your kids or for your mom or for your dad. Our God is the God who calls into existence the things that do not yet exist and he gives the gift of faith where it did not exist before. Now we arrive at an important point. Observe here now how faith functioned in Abraham's life. What did faith do? How did it act? What was faith to Abraham? Because it's going to be a paradigm for our faith. Verse 18, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or, whom he or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, this is a very important point. Paul is making a statement about the nature of faith, what faith is. Faith is not mere knowledge of the facts. Faith is not mere assent to what is true. Faith is a whole-souled commitment to God in Christ. It is staking all that I am on all that He is. In fact, that's a very good definition of what faith is. Staking all that I am on all that Jesus is. Faith, as the great reformer Martin Luther said in commentary on Galatians 5.6, which speaks of faith working through love, he says faith is an active and restless thing. Faith is wriggling. Faith has life. Faith does things. Faith makes commitments. Faith obeys God. Faith carries in its train good works that bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. Some of you have children, adult children. I know this because you've told me this. You've asked me to pray for them. You have adult children who have said something to you, they're living a, a profligate lifestyle, they're living like prodigals in the world, and they said something to you, well, mom and dad, leave me alone with this stuff, once saved, always saved, um, I made a decision when I was 11, get off my back. Okay, I, I don't know 
what was true about that decision. It's not the kind of faith that Abraham had. Saving faith, true saving faith, has implications for how we live. And it was by that faith that Abraham persevered, and he held fast to the Lord and followed the Lord, because that's what faith does. Faith is the root, and our obedience to God is the fruit that vindicates that saving faith was really there, that faith by which we are justified. Faith always carries in its train obedience to God, albeit imperfect obedience to God, but obedience to God nonetheless. It's part of the nature, the essence, the quality of saving faith. And so it was in Abraham's experience. Faith led to exertion in Abraham's life. It led to conscious decisions. It it led to believing and following God in very hard circumstances. And we're going to see at the climax of this series in Genesis 22, it led Abraham with his son pressed down on an altar to lift a knife to put to his son's heart. Saving faith obeys the word of the Lord. Saving faith believes God, it's counted to him as righteousness, and then faith works, faith acts. It is an active and a restless thing. And so it was in Abraham's experience. And it must be this way in our lives as well. Faith is not passive. Faith is active. It's how it operated for Abraham. It's how it must operate for us. But now here's uh, the point of the whole sermon. Verse 23, but the words, it was counted to him, Genesis 15, 6, B, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. How could Paul know that? Isn't that extraordinary? An event that took place 21, 2200 years prior to Paul being alive, 4100, 4200 years prior to the preaching of this sermon, Paul is saying this was written for us. It's interesting, Abraham didn't write Genesis 15 and 6. Moses wrote it about 500 years later. So Paul's saying when this was written 1,500 years ago, it wasn't just written in reference to Abraham. It was written for your sake also. In other words, why did this happen? It wasn't only for Abraham, 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's saying it's not because he was some rare exception or some superhero saint. Faith in God will be counted to us also as righteousness. Those of us who believe in the same God. Now, it's important here, we know a bit more about this God, don't we, than Abraham. Same object, God who brings salvation, righteousness, deliverance for His people. The same object, it's the same God, we don't worship a different God from Abraham. But you see, the object of our faith is held in the New Testament to be so much richer and fuller and clearer. Why? Because it is in these days that God has revealed Himself through His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But we know what Abraham knew about God is that he would give a son, that he would give descendants, and that through his offspring all the families of the world will be blessed. But he didn't know the name Jesus. He didn't even know the word Messiah. We know it. We look back on it. We have the full story. And we know that this same God who Abraham believed in is also the God who raised Jesus Christ up from the dead, who died for our trespasses and was raised, why? For our justification. So that sinners like us who appear before the bar of God and who justly have God as our prosecutor and our judge, who have violated His righteous law, His holy standards, we can be made right in God's courtroom, justified because we have an advocate, someone who intercedes for us, a mediator between God and man. He was put to death for our trespasses, raised for our justification so that we could be saved, so that we could be right with God. We are saved also like Abraham through faith in this God, and we know Him as the God who gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life and be justified in God's sight. That God, through sacrificing His Son in our place, might uphold His righteous standard while at the same time bringing many sons to glory, such that He can be, what did Paul say in Romans 3? God is just, and the justifier, the man or the woman or the boy or the girl who has faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham's faith is a paradigm for our faith. Same object, but we know that object with greater clarity, greater richness. We see it more fully as the seed that was promised has come and has blossomed into the gospel message. Fifth and final point, I'm just going to mention it. Fifth and final point. The fourth was that Abraham's faith is a paradigm for our faith. The fifth is actually in Romans 5. Paul asserts that the outcome of justification by faith is peace with God. Look over at Romans 5, just the first two verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Rebels, enemies of God, the ungodly, the wicked who have violated His righteous standards, through what our Lord has done and through faith in what He has done, we have peace with God. Not condemnation, not warfare, not wrath. We're at peace with God. And we have access to Him. The whole situation's changed. Whereas we appeared in the courtroom, in the legal scene, with God as our judge, Jesus stands up as our advocate, and we're given the free pardon of sin through faith, and we are given righteousness through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are transported, as it were, from the courtroom now to the family room, where God is not our judge. God is not our prosecutor. God is not looking at us with His finger in our face saying that we are justly under His wrath. Rather, God is our Father and we are His children and we are given access, access. The access given us by grace 
to come to him as our father and enjoy the warmth of his love and his affirmation and his care as our father. Okay, listen, this has been, I don't think the Bible is complex, but we've gone through a lot of material and I fear that I may have made it more complex than the Spirit inspired it to be. Okay, so listen, if this has been over your head or, or, or if you've just been distracted this morning and you've been thinking about work tomorrow or you've been thinking about your grocery list or you've been thinking about that boy or girl that you like or whatever the thing is, please, please, please come back to me for the next five minutes. I need your undivided attention. You need to hear what I'm saying. Children here, you need to hear what I'm about to say to you. You have sinned against holy God, and you are justly under His wrath. God is not a meanie. God is a holy God who has been offended by your sin and your rebellion. And I have a feeling I don't need to persuade you of your sin. You have sinned against God and violated His law, and there is between you and God a great chasm. And if you die living in sin and unrighteousness, you will go to hell. And you will suffer the eternal wrath of God due to your sins forever and ever and ever. You have a sin problem. And there is no solution to be found in being a good boy or a good girl. There is no solution in listening carefully to your Sunday school teacher or memorizing the memory verse. Kids, adults included, there's no solution to be found in doing good. No solution to be found to your sin problem and your good outweighing your bad. There's no ceremony or ritual or prescription I can give you that can achieve the righteousness you need in order to be saved. There is one solution to your sin problem. It is the righteousness of God that is given to us through faith in Jesus Christ, God's own Son. I'm telling you on the basis of God's word. Faith will be counted to you as righteousness. If you, like Abraham, believe what God has revealed in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Trusting in him that he can save you from your sins. He's willing to count you right in God's eyes. And listen, that's what you so desperately need. I told you that when Anthony came in the room, he said, the house is on fire, you got to get out. And I turned back over and I went to bed. And the next thing I knew was my mom shaking me. we got to get out of here. And I looked out the window and there were flames engulfing the bushes and the house and it circled the doorway out of my room. And I ran out, and I leapt through the flames, and I lived. I had to see that the house was coming down. I had to see my situation as it was. Some of you are like in a burning building. The house is coming down. Flames have been set alight by your sins and the house is coming down, and you got to get out, and you can't wait. Jesus could come back in five minutes. There was a boy across the street who didn't expect to die abruptly at the age of 15. There was a time when 
3,500 people or so woke up on a Tuesday morning on September 11th. They didn't expect to meet their maker that day. They did. There are millions the world over who have died of the coronavirus. They did not expect that they were going to die. Things happen. People die. And more than that, Jesus Christ is coming back. Please don't just go home. Accept this word. You can be made right with God today. As surely as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, you can be made right with God today. I don't care what you have going on in your life, there is nothing more important than what I am telling you right now. This is the grand issue for your soul. That today, this day of salvation, you can be saved and can be made right with holy God. You could have a solution to your sin problem. You could be made right with the Lord. How do you do that? You believe in the God who justifies the wicked. And that is good news. Because we are the wicked. We are the ungodly. The word that we sung is that Jesus sinners does receive. God justifies the wicked. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies lawbreakers like you and me. And through faith in Jesus Christ, you can know God this morning as the one who is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Don't go home and forget about this. Settle with God now and have dealings with Him and His promises through faith in His Son. You can be made right with God today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you know my heart. You know the heart of every Christian in this place. And you know how strongly, earnestly, sincerely we believe that if there was some combination of words we could give that would save people from their sins, we would give them, we would say them, we would never stop saying them. Salvation depends, O sovereign God, on you giving the gift of faith. Please give it. Give to your people greater assurance of these things. Fill them with faith to believe that we are made right through what our Lord has done, through faith in Him. Please move upon all in this room, especially sinners who have never closed with Christ or believed on Him, to know and not to escape this reality that they stand condemned under the righteous wrath of God as His creatures who have rebelled against Him, we pray that that conviction would, would pervade in their minds and that they would see themselves as vile and as sinners just like we were and even still are. And may they know that they can fly to Christ and find in Him a Savior for their sins. That you, God, in all mercy and love, are pleased to count faith in your Son as the righteousness we need by which we can be made right with you. May all experience this day peace with God. And may we all be made partakers of the access that we're meant to have through grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Do this in pity and compassion and mercy for sinners and do this for the worship and exaltation of your own Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.